Welcome back to Charles Sturt Stories and the first episode in our alumni podcast series. In this episode, we're talking about, well, talking. For many of us, it plays a big role in nearly every aspect of our lives, and we often take it for granted. But for some, the ability to speak and communicate effectively is more challenging. In 2015, the ABS estimated that 1.2 million Australians had some level of communication disability. From kids to kings, a communication disorder can affect anyone at any time. It can be mild to severe, and it can change the course of someone's life. Our interim Vice-Chancellor, Professor John Germov, spoke with two leading communication disorder experts to find out more about the support available. Welcome, everyone. I'm Professor John Germov, the Interim Vice-Chancellor of Charles Sturt University. And today, I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Verdon, Head of Speech Pathology at Charles Sturt, and Dr. Kate Crow, an adjunct researcher at Charles Sturt and a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Iceland. Welcome, and thank you both for joining me today. Thanks, John. Thanks. Now, before we start, I just want to acknowledge that you're both actually PhD speech pathology graduates from Charles Sturt, and you were both announced as winners in our inaugural alumni awards program, which is, a Kate, you won the University Alumnus of the Year for professional achievement research, and Sarah, you won our Young Alumnus of the Year award. So a really hearty congratulations. Uh, it's, it's a great, great achievement. I'm really looking to talk with you today uh, about the work, the really important work that you're doing, which I think is world-leading and truly, truly remarkable. So let, let's begin. Um, Kate, let's start with you. I'll ask you the, our first official post-podcast question. It's probably an obvious one for a speechy, but what actually is a communication disorder? Yeah, so a communication disorder is basically a difficulty with being able to communicate. So communication involves the ability to use and to understand concepts through either verbal or signs or nonverbal communication or even using graphical symbols to communicate. And it might be a single or multiple aspect of an individual's communication that is affected. And it could involve the process of hearing or vision or language or speech. And it could be of any severity. It might be something mild, like a lisp, or something very severe, like a complete inability to communicate. And a communication disorder could be temporary for some people, or it can be permanent. And it can, can occur in any stage of life. So it could be something that's acquired um, later in life, so um, like from a stroke or from an illness or an accident. Um, or it could be something that develops during childhood or even something that a child is born with. Okay, thank you for that. And you said it, basically such disorders can affect anyone at any age. So I'm particularly interested, given that you've both done work on communication disorders um, and language difficulties with children, perhaps you, Sarah, in terms of how is a communication disorder different to a child experiencing things like language difficulties and so on from others? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I guess the best place to start is to talk about what is typical communication development? So how do you tell the difference if it's typical or if it's actually a communication disorder? And I think one of the biggest myths 
around is that children kind of just automatically acquire their language, perhaps by osmosis. But that's not true. We know if we left a child alone in a room and never spoke to them for the first six years of their life, then they would never develop language because language comes from your environment. So that if you want your child to have good, strong, rich language, then you need to give them a good, strong, rich language environment because they're only going to learn the words that they hear. And so it's really important. And this is why parents and educators play such a huge role in children's language development. And a really great way that you can tell if your child is on track is that Speech Pathology Australia have developed these typical milestones for development that have for each age, so 12 months, 18 months, two years, three years, et cetera, what a child is typically doing at that age. And that's a really helpful way for parents and educators to see whether or not their child is on track or whether perhaps there are some red flags. And of course, with um, any milestones, there's a whole heap of caveats as to, you know, they aren't developed for multilingual children. They're typically developed for English speaking children and they don't necessarily take in different cultural aspects. So use them with caution, but they're actually a really helpful way for people to say what's going on. So if there is something going on, typically children will be in one of two camps. So camp number one is that they're just a late talker or perhaps they haven't had great exposure to language and they'll catch up later if they're given good support. Camp number two is that they actually have a communication disorder. The tricky part is that at a really young age, it can be difficult to tell which camp a child belongs to. And so we know from the research that early intervention is key. The earlier you start supporting a child and intervening with them, the better chance they have at long-term success. And so my advice to parents and educators would be, if you're not sure which camp the child is in, go and see a speech pathologist and get them assessed anyway, because you've got absolutely nothing to lose. If you go there and there's nothing wrong, then you've got peace of mind. Fantastic. Nothing to worry about. A few strategies to help you along your way. But if your child is in camp number two and they have a communication disorder, whether it's a speech disorder, language disorder, autism spectrum disorder, then you're in the right place. You're with a professional and you're going to get them the help that you need. So a lot of people recommend the watch and wait approach and just wait and see. But I certainly don't recommend that because I think the earlier you get in and help your child, you're absolutely giving them the best chance at life. Could you maybe share uh, a client success story in that regard, something, you know, an actual tangible example of that that very practice in action? Absolutely. So um, I'm from the country. Uh, I'm based on the Aubrey campus, but I live out in a rural area. And I also work with clients as well as being an academic. And so I was referred this one little girl who was three and in her um, referral, she was said to be nonverbal and no attention span. So couldn't really engage in an interaction. And I started working with her and her mum. She's now got a really great vocabulary. She's toilet trained because she's able to ask people if she can go to the toilet. Um, she's in, I've been working with her preschool, so giving her strategies for play and working with her educator. She's got a huge vocabulary to ask for what she needs. So all of the behavioural and issues have gone down because, of course, there's not as much need to tantrum if you can actually say, Mum, I need a drink of water, whereas if you don't have any words, of course you're going to cry because how else do you get your message across? So that's been such a really heartwarming experience of seeing what impact you can have if you can just go and work with a family and her mother is so supportive and really wants the best for her child but didn't have any access to services to actually help her child. 
And so this child was actually funded through the NDIS and was able to get some money for speech pathology. And it's made a huge, huge difference in her life. And the best part of the story is that she's only three. So we have still two years to work with her before she even starts school and get her back on track for having really good outcomes. Wow, that's amazing. I can just imagine there are parents and teachers out there that are listening to us right now. So I wonder if you might share, each of you, um, maybe some tips and strategies that firstly parents might um, like to adopt or consider and then perhaps we could ask from a teacher's point of view. So maybe, Sarah, if you'd like to respond to the tips for parents and then, Kate, you can jump in and, and cover off on any tips for teachers that they, they might be able to adopt. Sure. So in addition to my tip of getting help as soon as you can if you're concerned, I just wanted to add a little caveat that with the NDIS, which is a great funding package, you don't actually need a diagnosis before the age of seven. So if you go and see your doctor and share your concerns and you can get access to NDIS funding because speech pathology can be expensive if you can't get a public service. So that would be my advice is that you don't actually have to have a diagnosed disorder to get that early intervention support. In terms of what parents can do at home, I have a little acronym that I like to use. And so that is SPRING. And I'll tell you what each of the um, letters mean. And they're really fun and easy ways for families to just build in that language development in their everyday life. So the S is for SING. That's because SONG is a really great way of remembering concepts. I can't remember where I've left my keys, but I can remember every single word to Britney Spears' first album from when I was 12 because music lays down on your brain and it just (laughs) stays with you. And so if you're learning about concepts such as the song Head, Shoulders, Knees and Toes, you're learning your body parts in a jingle that's going to stay with the child. And so it can be much easier than trying to learn individual vocabulary words, actually putting them into a song. The next one is P for play. So play is children's core business. That's what they were put on this earth to do. That's how they figure out what's going on in the world and they explore their environment. So it's a really fun way for them to learn words by you telling them the words of the stuff that they're playing with. It's a great way for them to learn social interaction and turn-taking and all of that, but in a really fun way. The R is for read. Absolutely read with your children every single day and from birth because babies love books too. I think sometimes we think kids aren't into books until they're two or three, but they certainly are. And a colleague of ours at Charles State University, Dr. Michelle Brown, does a lot of work about reading with babies and what a huge impact it can have on their long-term abilities. It teaches kids lots of vocab that they wouldn't normally see. You're not going to see a giraffe or a zebra out the front of your house, but you'll see it in a book. So that's how you learn that vocabulary that's not familiar in your environment. And it ingrains that love of reading with children from a young age uh, and connection with their um, significant others. The I is for interact. And that comes back to what I just said about connection. The things that children crave most of all is not toys or lollies, it's interaction and connection with their loved ones. So if you can just give them that time, um, a great analogy that we use is the serve and return. So every time a child serves a communication attempt at you, you should return it. So whether it's a gesture or a sound, you know, it could be a baby even babbling at nine weeks of age, you saying, oh, baby, you're babbling. Oh, you're such a beautiful talker. That's that serve and return of constantly interacting with your child, letting them know that you hear them, that their communication has an impact on your life and that you're there to return that serve. The N is for name and narrate. 
And that's where talking to yourself comes in really handy. So it's nothing to be ashamed of. I talk to myself all the time. (laughs) And the more you talk to yourself, the more kids hear words in your environment. So if you're cooking dinner, you say, mummy's getting the pasta out, mummy's getting the pot out, mummy's stirring the pasta in the pot, learning all of these vocabulary words, but you don't have to do anything extra because you were already cooking the pasta in the pot. You just have to talk about it and the children learn the vocab. And the G, the very last one, is just going where the child leads because then you don't have to convince them to try and learn language. You just follow them. If they're interested in a truck, sit down and play with the truck. If they're interested in the TV show, talk to them about what's on the TV. If they're interested in the bug on the ground, then go with that. And there's so much opportunity to teach language in just whatever the child is already doing. You don't have to think up any fun and interesting activities because kids are already pretty fun. Great. Thank you for that, Sarah. Um, Kate, what about any tips to share for teachers? Basically everything Sarah just said. <laughs> so that all works very well for teachers as well. I mean, I think we're very fortunate in Australia with how well-trained our early childhood educators are in early childhood workforce is and the really rich environment that most um, children experience when they're in that early childhood environment. Um so that would be my main tip, like use Sarah's advice to create that environment. And, and along with that, like if you see something, say something. Um, early childhood educators and teachers are so well trained in knowing about children's language and development. Often they will pick up on whether there's a concern faster than some parents might. I mean, because they're seeing a child in the context of 20 peers the same age because a parent might just see their child they they've got a comparison so if you do see a concern talk to the parent and see if you can get that child um, an assessment or access to some services because early referral is the only way to get early intervention and teachers are such an important part of that okay that's great thank you for sharing those wonderful tips and and strategies I think as much as it's important for parents and teachers to be you know, intimately involved in the development of their, their children's speech. I know both of you have a view that and have played a role in upskilling the speech pathology workforce as well, because as new research comes through, there are new insights, and like all professions, it's continually evolving. So I wonder, Kate, you've done a lot of work in this space. You're a world leader in working with speech pathologists and teachers to implement uh, culturally responsive practices. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about your your work and the research you've done, uh, particularly on workforce issues. Yes, I mean I'm kind of I'm kind of the world's worst speech pathologist because I'm not really because I'm a speech pathologist and a teacher of the deaf and an interpreter. So I really thrive in working in the spaces in between those professions and trying to help those professions work together more to support our children. So my work has a lot been with speech pathologists and teachers and especially special education teachers who are working with supporting children with hearing loss and particularly multilingual children with hearing loss. So like as I said, um, one part of my background is an interpreter, so an Australian sign language to English interpreter. But what we're also finding is that more and more children with hearing loss are now becoming users of more than one spoken language. So they may sign as well, but they're also speaking Arabic at home and then they're learning English at school and maybe they're signing as well. So this is a really new kind of population because 
it has not been a possibility for children with hearing loss to be multilingual users of spoken language in the past. So a lot of my work has been about finding out what teachers and speech pathologists are doing at the moment to try and support those families, um, what they find is best practice, and then doing a lot of education around how we can pull what we know from other places. So what do we know about working with multilingual kids? What do we know about working with children with hearing loss and how we can put that all together to kind of upskill the profession much faster to work with this population? It, it is a, I mean, multilingual children on their own are a fascinating and very challenging group to work with. But once you add um, a sensory disability into the mix, it's, it's even more fun. So that's kind of the space I've been working in. Fascinating and hugely, hugely important work. For our speech pathologists out there, any, any, any tips or advice that you'd like to offer them? Yes. If you don't have experience working with multilingual children, you should definitely check out the Speech Pathology Australia um, guidelines for working in multicultural populations. And if you're looking for resources, there are some fantastic things out there. Like I would particularly point to Professor Sharon McLeod's website, Multilingual Children Speech. So it's um, hosted by Charles Sturt University. And it is just, it is the a most amazing place for resources in terms of, um, especially Professor McLeod's philosophy that things should be free. So there's assessments there that are translated, properly translated into multiple languages that um, that speech pathologists and teachers in any country can just download. So if, you, if you're working with a child who's from a language background that you don't know, find more information. And it's so hard when you're working in a busy practice, but there are places you can go and people who can help you to find the information that you need. Look, that, that's wonderful advice. And, you know, speaking of upskilling the workforce, uh, it would be remiss of me as the Vice-Chancellor not to mention our own uh, degree, our wonderful Master of Speech Pathology that we offer at Charles Sturt. And it really does prepare our graduates to work in a range of diverse work settings. I know we give them great experience and expertise in dealing with uh, populations in rural, regional and remote communities. But I wonder... Sarah, could you share a little bit more about uh, about our Masters of Speech Pathology? I would love to. So our Masters of Speech Pathology is actually the first blended online Masters of Speech Pathology in Australia. And so our university and our team has led the way in terms of course design for online learning in speech pathology and online pedagogy. And I can't take any credit for that because that was before my time, but the team who developed it are still here and still leading the way in that space. And it's only become more important in this COVID-19 world now where a lot of um, teaching has had to move online like that instead of having this really great preparation process that we had. So we were already really well placed to teach online because that's what we were doing already. But the key, um, I guess, philosophy that underpins our master's course from our team's perspective is one of equity and diversification of the workforce. So we've done a lot of research around our courses and the impact that they have in the rural health space. And one thing that we've found from the research is that we tend to, both our former bachelor's course and our master's course tends to attract people who are first in family attending university, first people to graduate from university in their families. Um, we tend to, as you said, attract mostly rural, regional and remote students. 
And we tend to attract people like new mothers who are trying to re-enter the workforce who otherwise would not be working as speech pathologists because they couldn't leave their family to go to a university course all the time. Um, They have too many other commitments, so they can do that via the online learning. So we're really proud of the fact that we are opening up opportunities for the profession to take in more broad perspectives and also especially work in our passion area of rural health. And our research has shown that if a speech pathologist comes from a rural area and is trained in a rural course, they are significantly more likely to go back into rural practice, which is so essential because there is such a huge shortage of speech pathologists in rural areas. And I guess I'm living proof of that. I come from a small town about an hour from Albury, and I never would have been a speech pathologist if the course was not at Albury because it was within my local area. I could go there and study and still be close to family and friends. I didn't want to move to a city. And now I've been able to forge a great career by staying local and I'm so happy to be able to give back to Charles Sturt University now because that was the course that I went through and especially as I mentioned with the advent of the NDIS so many children now have funding for speech pathology in rural areas but there's actually no one to service them so it's so important that we have rurally based speech pathology courses so that we can keep building that rural health workforce and providing those life-changing interventions for people in rural areas. Well, thanks, Sarah. It, it really is um, uh, an excellent course. And like all Charles Sturt degrees, ensures we, we ensure that our graduates are, are highly employable. We have the highest employment rate in the country out of any university for our graduates. And it's courses like the Masters of Speech Pathology that really meet the needs of the community. And that's why we find our graduates are highly sought after. Now, look, we're almost out of time. Uh, Sarah and Kate, thank you so much for joining me today and to really talk about your work and the real impact that you're having on not just our graduates, not just our future workforce, but really meeting the needs of children and parents and, and teachers as well. But just before we go, I wanted any, any other helpful sites that you recommend to our audience who might want to learn a little bit more I can highly recommend the Raising and Educating Deaf Children um, website and e-bulletins that are available through Oxford University Press. They're um, a free resource and they're written by experts across the world and they have a very strict format which makes it extremely accessible. Each bulletin is a maximum of 700 words and they have to address set questions. So they cover such a diverse range of issues. So if you have any interest in working with children with hearing loss, um, that is a great resource that you can access for free. Great. And Sarah? So I would direct families to the communication milestones from Speech Pathology Australia that I mentioned earlier. I think a lot of the research that we do, we write up into journal articles, but one of the most important part of our job is being able to translate those for the people that actually need that information. So that's why I have developed my own podcast, which is specifically targeted at um, parents and educators to try and um, distill that information into sort of 10, 15 minute segments that make sense for families. A bit of a self-plug there, but that's probably where I would direct people. For those interested, Sarah, what's the name of the podcast again? Uh, it's called the Talking Children Podcast and it's available on Spotify, Apple and all other podcast places. I can't think of a, a better point to sort of wrap things up. And um, once again, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing um, this information. And look, thanks to everyone out there for listening. And I look forward to you joining me again 
for the next episode in our alumni podcast series. Once again, thanks everyone.